Why don't we pray as we open up scriptures together? Father, we thank you that uh, your word is life to us. It brings to us the ability to be able to see what it is that your heart is all about and how we as a people can continue to grow and continue to have confidence that you're watching over us. Lord, we know that in the book of James, we've been challenged with so much amazing stuff that we, um, we can feel like we're being overwhelmed with it all. But Lord, you take this word and you plant it in our lives and you grow it like a, like a seed, like a plant that will ultimately come to bear mature fruit. And so we offer ourselves afresh today to ensure that your work is completed within us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this last um, week, as I mentioned um, <clears throat> last Sunday, was that we've, as a staff, been down in, in the lower hut region. We were, te- we were attending there a, uh, a Baptist pastors conference, and it was a really inspirational time for us. We had Tark Barna, pastor from Auckland, come and spend some time with us, and we were just really encouraged and inspired by this, this time together. So as we push on and we look at the subject this morning, um, we're looking at the church and the church in itself is an organism that has life, and yet it's life that can be messed up, life that can be ruined, life that can be destroyed if we're not careful. So how do we actually do church better? That's what James is asking, because James is writing to all of the nations, all of the nations that have Christian faith within them. And as a nation... Under God ourselves, as we have been once, we, we struggle with this now, we have been shaped and formed by the, the, the protocols, by the, the mores, by the moral, uh, moral witness of the scriptures. And so we too uh, come before the Lord, each of us, and say, God, how is it that you will shape me through your word? And so this morning, I'm calling my talk, One Forward, Three Back. When I was a child... And uh, my mum or my teachers, or probably the same for you, would uh, tell you off for pointing out somebody else's fault. We're always told, you know, when you point your finger, you've got one going forward and three going back. Is that right? Did you get told that as kids? Don't point at somebody else's faults because, you know, that'll come back and measure you as well. And that's so true. I know that as a little kid, uh, the oldest in my family, I had a younger brother. He's about 22 months younger than me. And my folks share milking at the time. And such is the time of the day, oh, oh sorry, the day, such was the day that, uh, you know, kids were left to fend for themselves and mum and dad would rock off and do some work. And so um, apparently, I can't remember this, but this is all part of family legend, is that I would rip over to the cow shed and tell on my little brother for all the naughty things he was doing, you see. So I was, um, I was Jesus' little helper, probably, you know. Um, <laughs> And, and so my mum and dad said, look, don't come running over tell, tales on your brother all the time. You know, we've got things we've got to do, so don't worry about it. So anyway, apparently a week or so later, uh, they could hear my brother screaming uh, from this tree. And uh, my brother had climbed the tree, and in doing so, he fell down, and he was hanging from his foot, caught in the V of a branch. And I was sitting underneath the tree, just quietly eating the grapefruit. Uh, it was a grapefruit tree. And my dad could hear the screaming, and he comes running over and says, why don't you come and get us? And I said, well, you told me not to tell tales. So um, perfect, isn't it? You know, so you learn your lessons, one, forward, three, back. I wasn't going to judge anybody. My brother could stay there all day if he wanted. Um, <laughs> but um, the church, 
the church is a, is a, is a robust organisation, but it has a whole lot of sensitivities as well, doesn't it? And we've got to treat it as the way God sees it, as the bride of Christ. When I was down in uh, Lower Hutt with these pastors this last week, we had a couple of interesting characters floating around. This, this church venue used to be an old cinema, and so it's right on the street, it's got a big foyer. And we were having morning tea, having coffee, and uh, one of these local characters must have, must have done this before, I think, but he saw this great morning tea being put on for everybody, and so he gets himself a plastic bag and he walks in very boldly. One of the pastors saw this, I didn't see it. Walks in very boldly and walks around probably looking a little bit like he's uh, the clerical type and um, proceeds to put all this food in his plastic bag and apparently got this thing stonking full and uh, sort of dragged it outside and went off and fed his buddies down the road. So good on him. I thought, ah, God loves those who help themselves. Eh? That's not scriptural, but apparently it worked for him. But uh, there was this other guy hanging around as well, and some of the staff of the local church knew who he was, and he was standing there just staring at me at one point, and uh, he's unemployed, he sort of gets around town a bit, uh, but he, um, he, he, he confronted me and he said, hey, I went into one of your uh, earlier sessions, and he says, oh, I just got to tell you, you, know, you Baptists have got it all wrong, and he started rattling off all these things, and I said, what makes you think you're right? And he says, well, I've got a mate who's a prophet. Yeah, and, and, and he said, uh, I've spoke to him about what it is that you guys have said, and he, my friend says that you guys have got it all wrong. And I said, so he's a prophet, is he? Yeah, yeah, he's a prophet. I said, and he's, he's getting grumpy at us. Yeah, 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 he's getting grumpy at us, you. And I said, well, he just might be grumpy, not necessarily a prophet. You know, can you tell the difference? And so he sort of like took a couple of steps back and, he didn't quite know what to make of that because I, was, I wasn't going to take it on board what he had said, so I was just trying to push back gently. Anyway, the following day, I was um, just having um, lunch with some pastors that finished the conference, and uh, my phone went, so I was standing outside on the footpath, and I saw this guy come up to me again on the street, and I was like, this could be interesting. Um, and he stood there like this, just staunching me out, you know. And uh, anyway, I finished my phone conversation. I said, hey, can I help you? And he goes, you know what? You're right. <laughs> he said, this morning I was reading my Bible and God totally convicted me about what it is you said to me about the church being something that we shouldn't be bagging or knocking. And he said, I'm, and I got it completely wrong. And uh, I'm just here to say I'm sorry. And with that, he gave me his, a, a big sort of two weeks without a shower hug. And, uh, <laughs> um, and we're all friends now. So... All I'm saying is that um, with James, with James, today we're going to look at some scriptures that are, are quite challenging. They cause us to stop and reflect and sober up a little bit more on ourselves because we have to take an honest look at what it is that we do to contribute to the well-being of our society, our, particularly in this case, our, our church. And so James actually speaks in a rhythm here of four different things that he wants to say to us. He really wants us to get hold of this. You know, he's going to overwhelm us, if you like, with these, these words, repeating the theme, a theme of humility and a theme of repentance. James says, submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Okay, so this is one of those verses that you, if you've been raised in Sunday school, you may have learnt this. It's a very easy verse to remember. Submit yourself to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. A lot of people take on the, uh, 
resisting the devil part, but they haven't really submitted their lives to Christ yet, so you can get yourself in all sorts of trouble there. But what does it mean to submit yourself to Christ? Submit yourselves then to God. And the simplest place and the most appropriate place to go to is the, are the words of Jesus. And so we find in Matthew's Gospel on the Sermon of the Mount, these words which have echoed and resonated throughout the world over centuries. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so we take this in its entirety and we say, here's a statement of Christian values. Here's a statement that describes what it means to actually live in the world and to own something that is of the kingdom, to be part of the kingdom. Now, when I was working through this scripture earlier on this week, I, um, I asked myself the question, what would be the opposite? What would be the antithesis of the Beatitudes that we've got in front of us here? So I was just about to start scratching some down, my own thought, down, down some of my own thoughts, and I thought, I bet you Mr. Google will provide an answer. So I went to Mr. Google and I said, what is the opposite of the Beatitudes? And I found that this guy, Pastor Josh Harris, had already beaten me to them, so I thought I'd use his. He says, the world looks at the attitudes this way. Blessed are the self-confident because they will rule the world. Blessed are the positive thinkers because they don't need anybody's comfort. Blessed are the cocky and assertive because they get what they want. Blessed are those who hunger for fans because they get reality TV shows. Blessed are the vengeful because they get respect. Blessed are the impure because your mates think you're manly and cool. Blessed are those who beat their opponents because the victors write the history books. And blessed are the popular because everybody loves them. Now, I think I've just written the script for the Kardashian program. Uh, probably quickly followed by any reality TV show that you find. Because this is all of these values here are being exercised, aren't they? It's true, isn't it? If you put this out and said, here's your script to follow, make sure you fulfill all of these things, and we'll have a, a top-rating TV show as people's egos exercise all of these different uh, thoughts and feelings of what the world says you should be to get ahead. So this is the opposite. This is the antithesis. This is what it is that we're fighting against when it comes to our own human nature, our own sinful human nature, because the world will tell us that these are the ways in which we get ahead. These are the ways in which you win favor. These are the ways in which you succeed and get first place. So we go back to our, our Beatitudes, and we find that it's those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are meek, who are hungry, who are merciful, who are pure, who are peacemakers, and often are the persecuted. These are the people that we are part of. These are the people that we call our own. This is the aspiration of the church to be found living out this Sermon of the Mount and these Beatitudes are all for us to aspire to. But uh, the temptation, of course, is to, is to say, resist the devil and forget about the kingdom. Yeah, you know, I don't know about you, but I've met a few people who see themselves as uh, those who would take on the spiritual battle but haven't really submitted themselves to the will of God. And so you can get the, the cart before the horse and get yourself into all sorts of 
spiritual trouble here. Let's have a look at uh, 2 Corinthians. It talks about this spiritual battle. It says here in 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So when we take on the world, we don't take it on with its, with its same armament. We take it on with prayer, and we demolish strongholds with the fruit of the Spirit and with the attitudes that are described to us by Jesus that we've just looked at. There can be strongholds of unforgiveness. There can be strongholds of hatred, even within a family, in an extended family. You demolish those strongholds with love. You demolish those strongholds with humility. You demolish them with words that might begin with, hey, look, I don't know how we ended up in this place, but I'm sorry for anything I've done to hurt you. And that can be a powerful start to a conversation that may be years overdue. You see, we demolish strongholds by coming in the opposite spirit to the ways of the world. Where there is um, greed, we overcome it with generosity. Where there is hatred, we overcome it with love. Where there is selfishness, we overcome it with, with um, bringing all of our being into something that others are trying to steal from you. So we demolish strongholds. We pull down those things that pretend uh, to be a winning value, but they're not. They're going to take you into a place where you will lose. And those final parts of the scripture that says, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. This is what uh, Romans talks about when we talk about being transformed by the renewal of our mind. When we're transformed by the renewal of our mind, uh, we, we change the attitude that we have. We change the mindset that we have. And I'm always brought back to when I was first a Christian, looking at this verse and thinking, man, there's a whole lot of my thoughts that need to go to jail. There's a whole lot of my thoughts that need to be put into captivity. Okay, so I need to take those thoughts captive, and I need to ensure that my mind becomes a place where, um, where God's values live, and the convincing of my mind, the convincing of my heart, would allow for the overflow of my heart to speak. And this is called, this is called repentance. This is called changing going from where you were to going to where God wants you to be. Another verse to look at in the same vein is in 1 Peter chapter 5. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Okay, so here's the, here's the nature of evil being personified as a lion. Don't get the impression that there's just one line and if somebody would shoot the thing, it would be all over. It would be nice and handy. We'd all, won't be, we'll all be uh, let, let free, if you like. No, this represents evil that is around us and is part of our own human nature. But one of the most profound things that I had occur when I was at theological college was when the day our old, very godly principal, Brian Kingston Smith, was leading a lecture and there's a guy who's really, really humble. He spent with his wife and family a long time up in India translating scriptures. And uh, he's, a, he's a godly man. He's a real academic. And he had everybody's total respect. 
uh, one day he was talking about the nature of evil. And he said, look, he said, if I was given the right circumstances, put under the same sort of pressures as others, he said, I too could easily have been a concentration guard, a concentration camp guard in a place like Auschwitz during World War II. And we were all like, no, not you, Brian. You're such a saint. And he says, no, no, don't be fooled. Don't be fooled. Human nature is what it is. We are all capable of the most horrendous evil if we're put in the circumstances that demand it. And that was a really sobering thought for us all, I think. But for me at the time, I thought, you know, he's, he's actually right. We all have a fallen nature. And given a different set of circumstances where nurture invokes nature and you end up in a place where evil is very hard to resist. And so we all have this place. And this is what, this is what James is saying to us. We've got to take a really sober look at ourselves, not to diminish ourselves, not to say that I'm worthless, but just to say what it is that I'm capable of. And I'm pretty sure that somebody who knows what they are capable of is a safer person than somebody who hasn't explored that. It's like giving um, your teenager their driver's license, as we'd all get at some stage in our lives, we've all had this, and giving the keys to a vehicle that could go 100 miles an hour or 160 kilometers an hour. We as adults would know what that vehicle is capable of. The teenager who's just got their license possibly doesn't. And that's where they get themselves in trouble. They understand the power, but they don't understand how it is that that power can get them into all sorts of trouble. So it is with human nature and free will. We all have power, we all have freedom, but they can get us into all sorts of trouble. So we have to have a very sober attitude. And so here Peter is saying uh, in that final part of that verse, it said, throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings, the family of believers. And even today, even today, persecution around the world is at a very, very high level. I was, a couple of years ago, I was in Europe at a Baptist World Alliance conference and spending time with pastors from Africa, particularly Nigeria. Nigeria is the largest nation in Africa, and um, they had a real problem with Christian-Muslim conflict, a particular group called Boko Haram. Boko Haram means uh, uh, those who are anti-Western education, anti-the book. And what they do is they literally go into churches and... And, and blow themselves up. And so they've been destroying churches around the country. Literally, literally thousands of people in, in Nigeria have been killed in church. But the media doesn't, doesn't pay any attention. The only thing that caught the media's attention was when the same group went into a, a school for girls and kidnapped 200 young teenage girls. You might remember that story a couple of years ago. Yeah, but that was only a small part of the bigger picture. And so they've got this intimidation going around them. And you have to be a really brave person now to go to church. Churches have just been decimated by the fear that they might get killed in church. And so they have big metal detectors and all those sorts of things. It's really scary. In the, in the, in the uh, nation of Egypt, Coptic Christians, one of the oldest group of Christians uh, that have ever been, have been really persecuted in the last four or five years since the change of government, since the Arab the Arab Spring. And just before Christmas last year, a group of Coptic Christians went out on a bus to go for a church picnic, and the bus got pulled over and machine gunned and all 25 people in the, 
and the bus were murdered. And no one seems to know how it happened. So we live in a world where this, this lion, if you like, as we've been called, it's been called here, is still roaring. And so persecution is part of what it is to be a Christian. We can just be grateful, as we always are, of where we live. So going back to James, he says, Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now this is part two of this torrent of water, this torrent of encouragement and persuasion that James is bringing to us. And let's move on to part three. He's saying the same thing again. He says, grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. And right now you're going, why did I bother coming to church this morning? <laughs> okay. But again, it's this call to a sober reality, a sober reality which says we live in a world that is really messed up. But the church, if we look after it, can be a place of wealth and love and confidence and truth and fellowship, just a wealth of all of those different things if we look after it. And so ultimately, James says in this, this group of words here, he says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Okay, so when you put all this together, that's very challenging, isn't it? It's very challenging, very sobering. Because for all of us, it means that we've got to take a, a good look at ourselves and say, where is it that we fit into the body of Christ? And how is it that we're making a contribution to its well-being? But James is also talking to us personally, and this is where it always starts. He's talking about repentance. And true repentance is not to be repented of. Okay, so if, if you repent of repenting, you haven't repented at all. Does that help? No. Okay, so let me put it this way. This is something that I've been saving for 18 months to show you. This was in the newspaper about 18 months ago. Welcome to Fokatani. All out-of-town tradespeople make a 360-degree turn at the next roundabout and something back to your own town. This was a sign placed outside of uh, Fokatani uh, Township. All right, obviously someone's trying to protect the local jobs from tradies from outside of Fokatani. Uh, those words that are scrubbed out, they're not what you think. I don't know what you're thinking, but they're not what you think. Um, but we didn't need them. The only problem with this little saying is it goes like this. I'm driving towards Fokatani. When you get to the roundabout, I want you to do a 360-degree turn. Okay? So this guy was passionate about protecting jobs, but he didn't quite get this right, did he? So if he had said do a 180-degree turn, you know, go back where you came from, that's fine. Um, but in the context of repentance, Christians are often like this, you know, sad to say, but we, we say, I really need to change this attitude, behavior, or this action, and we start this process, and we go, oh, Lord, thank you for the conviction. I'll never do that again, and about a week later, we've forgotten what we repented of, and so we're back to where, the way we were going, okay? So that's why James really sticks it to us. He says, look, I'm telling you, telling you straight, telling you straight. Have a sober view of who you are. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to. And in doing so, you'll be humble. And guess what? God will lift you up. Okay? It's not complicated. What he's saying is that 
Don't try to achieve everything in your own strength. Achieve it in God's strength. And here James goes on, and he says this about our behaviors towards one another. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. Okay? Well, sounds a bit philosophical, doesn't it? Let's just look at this word slander. The definition is to question someone's authority. It doesn't mean a person's in authority. To spread hurtful lies about them or say unhelpful or unkind things about them. Okay, so slander can happen anytime, anywhere, for any reason. Whether you're young or old, it doesn't matter. Slander is an easy, cheap form of getting ahead of somebody else. Because what you're inferring when you say somebody is doing something or said something, you're implying that you would never do that. You're implying that you're better than the person who you're slandering. Okay, so we've got to be really careful because that's the attitude that we're being told we shouldn't have because we affect, in effect, judging others and judging the law. You know, we're asking, James is asking the question, who made you the boss? Who gave you authority to judge other people in that way? And we've all been judged at some time, and more than likely we've been misjudged, misrepresented. And these can be really hurtful times. But we're all guilty of it. And that's why I called my talk this morning, one forward, three back. We have to stop and look at how it is that behaviors that are common to everybody, negative behaviors, are something that we're all responsible for. I know when I hear of something happening in the life of a church and where a pastor's gone, gone pear-shaped or strange or got into some sort of sinful activity, I know for myself my response these days is, well, you know, there I go but for the grace of God. You know, that could have been me but for the grace of God. God helped me to have a sober and humble view of myself so that I won't start believing what others might say about me and put myself in a place where I'm starting to think more highly of myself than I ought to, because in that moment, I'm really, really vulnerable. You know, I can be the, the guy who's ta- so, so fixated on taking a, a real positive selfie of myself that I walk backwards off a cliff, you know, as, as people do. They do, yeah. So, James says, there is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy but you, who are you to judge your neighbors? So we find ourselves now in a place with the church is, um, for us, church is a positive experience, isn't it? And by being a positive experience for us, we need to perpetuate that so others have a positive experience as well. The thing about these verses that we've just looked at is that they were verses that really helped form the church, particularly back in the 3rd and 4th century, where church was under persecution. And so a lot of people headed off into the deserts in Turkey to form these little wee communities that were built around humility, uh, austerity, poverty, celibacy, love, patience, kindness, all the fruit of the Spirit. And it was these hard-hitting verses that really formed a big part of what is our Christian history. 
And I can remember a couple of years ago when I was on sabbatical, I went to Turkey with Michaela, and we went to these places in a place called Cappadocia, Cappadocia. And uh, there we found these little wee churches, not, not even as big as this one area of seating over here, that have been carved out of the limestone and dedicated to service by the, the great monks like St. Benedict and uh, St. Gregory uh, and others, St. Basil, these people who set up an order of life and an order of worship, and in doing so, preserved the faith in a way that gave people hope and life and structure, but it was always centered around the fact that we need to be humble and we need to be serving the least of the least around us. So these scriptures that we've read this morning, these scriptures that I'm appealing to us from, have shaped communities for thousands of years and given us the church that really does choose to serve. And for that purpose, for that reason, we, we look at these scriptures and we say, God, these, these sort of verses have, have served you in the past. How can they serve you now? Can we take the Beatitudes of the world? Are we going to beat the Kardashians at their own game? No, thank God. But we can be the body of Christ. We can be the church. With humility, we can serve one another first and then the world around us. Isn't that cool? Let's stand for prayer. Father, we come before you and by way of confession know that we're all very capable of repenting 360 degrees. We're very capable of having our mind convinced but our actions don't even follow. To be able to sit here today and affirm scripture as being the truth and the way we want to live and yet here we are wrestling against our old human nature. Lord, we want to be able to demolish strongholds around us with love. We want to be able to demolish strongholds around us with humility. But let there be a bold love and a bold humility. Let it be a confident one because firstly, we are formed and shaped and identified in you. We're created in your image. We are your children first. And from that perspective, Lord, we realize our value. A value that means we don't have to stand on somebody else to feel better or more important. A value and an appreciation of who we are that says we don't have to rob somebody else of their dignity or rob somebody else of a place or a position to feel better about ourselves. So God, we, we ask that you continue to shape us, form us, create in us that new heart and allow us, Lord, to be able to hear your voice and see in your word how it is that we're called to be the church of today. So we ask your blessing upon us as a church and upon us as individuals. For your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.